Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Chances are you've heard these words before. Maybe you've heard them a thousand times before. For some few people here or watching online, maybe this is the first time you are hearing them. Either way, it's an easy thing to hear, but it's a little more difficult to grasp and to believe. And more often than not, it becomes a truth that we maybe assent to theoretically without allowing ourselves to believe it personally. Nothing can separate us from God's love. The other day, I was praying for someone. And as I was praying, I suddenly had an image of how much God loved them, this one individual. We talk casually about the indescribable love of God, but suddenly that word indescribable made sense to me because words fail in the face of what I saw. It was a force more, a million times more powerful than anything that my mind could even begin to comprehend. It was something too close to, or too, too powerful to approach. It was amazing and I was stunned and humbled and blown away by what I saw. It only lasted for a moment, and even now I can't remember it clearly. And maybe it was purely my imagination at work. But even if so, my imagination helped me to understand a little bit better what lies behind the truth of what we proclaim as our faith, the Christian faith, that nothing can separate us from God's love. And it helped me understand the truth underlying the statements of the Apostles' Creed that we have now been teaching on for six weeks. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, who created the universe out of this immense love. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, who in the power of this love chose to humble himself, being born as a child in all its frailty and vulnerability. I believe that Jesus, in the strength of this love, went to the cross voluntarily because he so desperately longed for us to be healed of our sin, to be made whole as humanity was intended to be, and to be reconciled with God. And I believe that Jesus, in the strength of this love, descended to the dead and rose again so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're halfway through our teaching series on the Apostles' Creed. Last week, Jenny preached on the statement, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. She reminded us that the message of the gospel seems like foolishness because it is a message of grace, a message of being given what we don't deserve. And this is opposite to how the world functions. And today, we have two of the most amazing statements that have ever been said about a human being. He descended to the dead, and he rose again on the third day. He descended to the dead. Have you ever stopped to think about that and wonder what it might mean? We say it all the time. But why is it in the creed? Why not simply say Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and ra raised on the third day? My friends, this statement is of utmost importance to us because it proclaims the truth that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from this immense love of God. 
So bear with me while I do a bit of teaching on what this means, because it's both profound and immensely hopeful. Up until this point, this point of Jesus in Jewish history, common understanding was that when people died, they descended to the realm of the dead, which was also known as Sheol or Hades or hell. But it wasn't the hell of punishment that we think of it, simply the land of the dead. This was a place of nothingness, where the dead simply existed, but couldn't actually do anything. Psalm 115 verse 17 says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. They simply exist. And so the natural question when the early church was trying to figure out what Jesus' death and resurrection meant was, well, what about those who died before Christ came? What about Adam and Eve and the prophets and even John the Baptist, who was Jesus' friend, but died before he could see the resurrection? This was an active concern and so the apostles put clues about it in their letters to the churches, letters that later became a part of the Bible. And to be fair and to be clear, we don't know exactly what happened on those, in those three days, and nobody will know on this side of the grave. But consider this verse from the Apostle Peter's first letter. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. Imagine that. Jesus, after he died, preaching to the spirits imprisoned in Sheol. The Apostle Paul also talks about Jesus descending to the lower parts of the earth in Ephesians, and this was where Sheol was assumed to be. The Apostle John in his gospel talks about the dead hearing the voice of Jesus and living. But Christian teaching holds that Jesus didn't just go to preach. He also went to show that he is Lord, not just of the realm of the living, but of the realm of the dead. The letter to the Hebrews says this, he himself partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. This Christian teaching is known as the harrowing of hell. The idea that Jesus descended into Hades before being resurrected in order to save all those who came before his earthly ministry. His atonement for sin on the cross allowed him to defeat the powers of death and to open up the doors of Hades for all eternity. This is a lot. Are you still with me? Are you still with me online? Keep listening. Here's a picture to illustrate what's happening. The Eastern Orthodox Church have emphasized this teaching much more than we have in the West. And they have some lovely icons illustrating the spiritual truth of it. This icon was written by a Russian artist named Dionysius in about 1502. In it, Jesus is standing on the doors of death, so Sheol or Hades or hell, and those doors have broken and they've fallen into the shape of a cross. He's holding Adam and Eve by the wrists, and he's pulling them up out of Hades. And notice that he's holding them by the wrists and not by their hands, because they are helpless to save themselves. They have not grabbed onto him, he's grabbed onto them. Jesus is doing all the work. He's surrounded by all the different righteous figures from the Old Testament, Abraham, David, and so on. And at the very bottom of the pit, and I think I love this the best, 
death and sin personified is bound in chains and held captive, helpless. This, of course, is not meant to be a literal representation of what Jesus has done, but spiritual. It illustrates the spiritual truth of what we say when we say he descended to the dead, that Jesus, in his love for us, went to the realm, to the lair of death itself, defeated it, and emptied it of its power. And then he rose again on the third day. And here is the second of the most amazing statements ever said about a human being, that death could not hold Jesus captive, and he rose again. When we proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead, as the Apostle Paul argues in his letter to the Corinthian church that Dave read for us, we're talking about a physical resurrection, not simply a metaphorical or spiritual one. And this has been a sticking point and a stumbling block for many people for 2,000 years. And that is entirely understandable and fair. The whole reason Paul was writing this was that the, the, the Corinthians themselves weren't sure what to think. So let me say two things about that. First, one of the beauties of Christianity in general, and Anglicanism in particular in my experience, is that it delights in questions, in probing, intellectual curiosity and scientific discovery. Think of the pictures that Jenny showed last week from the Webb telescope. Each week we say something like, whether you are spiritually searching, critical, curious, committed, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whatever questions and doubts you have, you are welcome here. And that is true because we don't want you to check your brain at the door. We want you to be thinking, to be digging deep. And so some people will not be able to assent to a physical resurrection at this point in your journey, and that's okay. But I encourage you to look into it. Many, many thoughtful Christian or thoughtful and intelligent people over the years have studied all the facts. They've studied all the accounts surrounding this story. Many people have come away convinced of its truth. But even in the end, even the disciples who saw Jesus immediately after his resurrection doubted. And it still required a step of faith for them to say, yes, Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. It still requires a step of faith to say, I believe. The second thing about this physical resurrection is what it means for us who do end up believing. The Apostle Paul wrote wisely that if, only, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We've based our hope on something false, we've proclaimed something false, and we've wasted our lives in pursuit of something false. But Paul continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And for we who believe this, it makes all the difference in the world. It means that we neither fear death as the ultimate end of existence, nor grieve the loss of loved ones as if we'll never see them again. Because if Christ has been raised, we too will be raised. It means that this world is not our only chance at living, and that what we do here matters on a much bigger scale than we know. And so we can live with purpose and conviction, knowing that our actions have eternal impact. It means that we can rest in the hope 
and confidence that our sins actually are forgiven, washed away. Because if Christ has been raised, his death accomplished the purpose for which he came, to atone for our sins and to make us right with God. And so finally, it means that we can actually live without guilt or fear, trusting in the profound love of God, a love that led Jesus to the cross and to Hades and up from the grave on our behalf. I've quoted this verse from the eighth chapter of Romans in my sermons before, but it's worth quoting again, and with this, I'll end. Because ultimately, this is what we are believing when we, when we say he descended to the dead on the third day he rose again. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death itself, because he descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. Amen. <laughs>